Okay, let's go. Look, um, I hope that was a helpful discussion just to sort of get us into the topic. And one of the things I want to do for the next sort of 15 to 18 minutes is spend a bit of time talking about this topic as to whether or not miracles are fake or divine. I'm going to get you to talk among yourselves and I'm going to do a little bit of an interactive session as well, just so you know what's coming, right? No obligation to talk, by the way. Uh, but we're really glad that you're here. Uh, I wonder whether or not you think things happen miraculously. Uh, you may be a person of significant faith and you look for miracles all the time. You may be a significant skeptic who thinks actually nothing ever happens miraculously, right? But it's interesting that this sort of language of expecting things to happen miraculously sometimes creeps into our conversation. It sort of almost creeps into sometimes what we expect. So sometimes when you may have sat for an exam, you may have walked out of the exam, you may have studied reasonably hard, and you've walked out and you've thought there is no way I passed that exam. Or maybe because you're all very diligent health students, you thought, oh, I'm not getting a high distinction for that one. I'm just going to have to settle for a distinction, right? And you nervously laugh and you go, yeah, that's actually me as well, right? You get the results. And if you're the sort of student that I was like, and I would have thought, oh, no way I passed. I get the results and I say, what a miracle. I passed the exam. We might have said, gee, that's miraculous. I actually got a high distinction instead of just getting a distinction, right? See, this sort of language of miraculous sort of creeps into our mindset a little bit. Uh, you may be like me in a sort of a, an earlier age of life when I was fairly busy and rushing everywhere. You might be heading out to go and meet with some friends, going to a party or going to a concert or a theatre or something like that. And you drive and you've left a little bit late and you're a massive optimist and you think, um, I'll just drive right out the front of where I need to go. I'm sure there'll be a parking spot. There never is, right? Yet you still insist on expecting there'll be a parking spot right at the front. You turn the corner, there's your destination, and lo and behold, there's one parking spot right there. It's not a no-standing zone, it's not a handicap zone. And you pull in and you say, what a miracle. There was a parking spot that opened up for me. Or perhaps in the health profession, we read stories of people who have miraculously survived operations. Despite the significant skill of the surgery team and all the people working on it, we still say it's miraculous. So this sort of language of miracles and miraculous sort of sometimes just sort of creeps into our usage. Not every day, but it's not as if it's never there. So what do we do with that? So as a starting point, I want to suggest maybe that we consider miracles to be those positive outcomes that are highly unexpected or surprising. Miracles are those positive outcomes that are highly unexpected or surprising. See, when we stop and think about even the three illustrations that I gave you, we don't justify getting a really good mark in an exam when we thought we'd failed, finding a parking spot, nor talking about the skill of medical professions as supernatural occurrences, do we? They're not miraculous in that sense. They may be very good positive outcomes that are highly unexpected or surprising, but from a supernatural point of view, they're not miraculous, which means we couldn't really say they were divine. So I want to start by saying I think there's actually a significant case against miracles. So let's start with the negative case, and then I'm going to put the positive case, right? It's not actually that hard to make a case against miracles. And I suspect there's some in the room who would say, yes, this is the case that I want to uphold, right? I'm skeptical about miracles. And I think for some people, there are people in the room who just think, look, the supernatural doesn't exist. It doesn't occur. It's too far-fetched to believe. And this is one of the foundational reasons why miracles probably don't exist sort of the case against miracles, right? And it's this idea that if we think that the world is only what we see in front of us, if the world is understood purely as a closed system where the laws of nature only apply and are only ever followed, then something that's divine by definition can't happen. Do you understand? That's sort of what you would call naturalism. 
So if you only think that the things that occur in nature and natural laws are all that is, then miracles just can't happen at all. You just say, well, that's an expression of nature working itself out in terms of a natural law. Do you see? So your parking spot that opens up, just opportunity. Someone wasn't parking there. There's nothing miraculous about it. There's nothing divine about it. Uh, David Hume, he's an 18th century philosopher. He says that miracles were, quote, a violation of the law of nature. So you see there, oh, thanks guys, we've got this working. Great, thank you. Had some tech problems, that's all sorted, good. Nice, no, this is working, this is good, right? Great, case against miracles, right? Uh, so what you see here is David Hume, he was an 18th century philosopher. He defined a miracle as a violation of the law of nature. He said the miracle is something that contravenes what we naturally see occurring. But if your worldview is such that all that there is, is the laws of nature, then miracles by definition can't happen. You see that? Now the second case against miracles, so the first one is only what we can see. The second one is what you might call incorrect attribution, right? See, the second foundation for the case against miracles is that the events described were incorrectly attributed as miraculous. So it was a news article uh, on a news site that I was reading at some point where someone had claimed that they'd miraculously been brought back from the dead. And that was the language that was being used, right? They're miraculously brought back from the dead. And I'm a bit of a skeptic at this point. I'm thinking, well, how long were you dead for? Was there no medical intervention, right? Well, in this case, no, the doctors worked on them over and over and over again. They were pronounced clinically dead. And then they decided to keep doing more resuscitation. The person came back to life. Now, you might claim that that was a miracle. I'm a little bit of a skeptic. I'd say, actually, I think that's incorrectly attributed as a miracle. I think that's a resuscitation. I think that's someone who may have been pronounced clinically dead, but for whatever reason was actually able to come back to life. So then you've got questions, were they actually accurately pronounced as being clinically dead? Or maybe they were like, but do you see how now what we're investigating is whether or not it actually is attributed as a miracle? So I think there's two foundations for the case against miracles that are really worth and worthy of considering. Firstly, sometimes people say the reason why miracles don't exist and any claim for the miraculous is fake is because the world is only what we can see. And secondly, often things that Christians or people who are believing in the supernatural would claim are miracles, like if you remember a story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people with one basket of bread, you go, I think that's incorrect attribution. I don't think that actually took place. It may have just been made up. So it may be claimed that it's a miracle, but actually it just sounds like it was just made up. Or maybe Jesus never really existed. So it's incorrectly attributed. So you've got the case against miracles, right? Now, the corollary of that, if you like, is actually now you've got the case for miracles. And so you're not surprising to see where we're going here, right? But what is the case for miracles? Actually, the case for miracles rests on two significant things. Firstly, that God actually exists. That there is something beyond just what we can see. And what it presumes is not only that God exists, but that he chooses at times to function in the world. He's not defying the laws of nature. But because he is God and he exists outside of the natural law, at points in time, he intervenes. This is, if you like, what you might call theism as opposed to naturalism. The existence of God. I'm not talking necessarily about a Christian God. I'm just saying the existence of a God which means unexpected, unusual, and perhaps unexplainable actions, particularly if you try and apply a naturalistic understanding to them, the best explanation for them are now explained as a supernatural act. 
an act undertaken by God. It doesn't mean they happen all the time. And in fact, sometimes we would say that the miraculous occurs very infrequently. Now, the second foundation for the claim or the case for miracles is that, that the items or the, uh, the, um, the, the evidence that we have for them, the occurrences that are described, are actually attributed correctly. And the challenge we've got here is a number of the claims that Christians make about miracles are attributed to the man Jesus who was around 2,000 years ago. So before we just lean into that, what we're going to do is we're going to do a little exercise. I want you to turn to the person next to you, right? And I want you to try and work out what are the different types of knowledge that we can acquire. I've got five that I'm thinking of, right? If you've studied any philosophy or you remember anything, it's called the study of epistemology. But because most of us are health students, that's a word you now don't have to remember, right? Let alone try and spell it. It's just what are the different types of knowledge? Talk to the person next to you. What are some of the different types of knowledge? I'll give you 30 seconds. And I'm just going to ask for volunteers. We're going to see if we can pick five. Is that all right? Talk to the person next to you. Okay, that's about 30 seconds. Any volunteers who want to call out some of the different types of knowledge that we've got? There's, there should be a blatantly obvious one that you all know. Anyone want to call it out? Experiential. That wasn't the one I was after, Tim. You want experiential. Okay, experiential knowledge. So an example of things that we learn from experience. So when you're a child, you may or may not have gone against your parents' direct commands to not touch the hot stuff on the stove because it'll hurt, right? You may have been an inquisitive, curious child who may have been a little bit disobedient. And you went, oh, I wonder if that's really the case. So you reach out and you touch the pot of boiling water that's on the stove, right? And as soon as you touch it, you feel the pain of it and you pull back. It's an instinctive reaction, right? Your responsive reaction. But the experience of it teaches you something. If I touch that thing on the stove and it's hot, it hurts and it burns. Now, scientifically, we can understand why that happens, but you acquire the knowledge through experience. Okay? Second type of knowledge you talked about. Give me another one. Yep. Up and back. Yeah, okay. So... If I may, right? Well, I'm not, this is a little trigger warning, okay? All right. Okay, solve for x. What's x? Alpha. Why is x alpha? Like you see, this is this is deductive reasoning, or what you might call rational knowledge. Okay, so rational knowledge relies on a couple of assumptions. Rational knowledge, in this case, for example, is that knowledge which is derived from a system where the rules themselves provide consistency and dictate certain outcomes. That's rational knowledge. Okay? Another type of knowledge? Give me another one. Yep, up the back. Historical, Historical knowledge. Okay? So this is that type of knowledge that's derived from the historic method about anything that's taken place in the past. So you might be able to tell me what you did on the weekend. But the way in which I know that is not because I experienced it, even though you may have. I can't rationally deduce it and therefore prove, because this is where you deduct and make proofs. No, this is a type of knowledge where you'll provide me with some evidence about what actually took place in the past. And I have to work out whether or not the evidence actually is consistent with the claim that you're making about what actually took place. This is for things that have happened in the past. Fourth one begins with an S, the thing that you're all involved in. Science, that's right, scientific knowledge, right? So the time scientific knowledge is that knowledge that's acquired through the scientific method, okay? There's lots of really great strengths about the scientific method. 
but it does have some constraints. Keep in mind that it functions under two main premises. The first is things need to be observable and constant, and they need to be repeatable. So you might be able to say, well, water boils at 100 degrees. How do I know this? I can't prove that water boils at 100 degrees. Technically, the only thing I can prove is rational knowledge. But what I can do is I can create a hypothesis and test it. And interestingly, every time I've tested it, the water's boiled at 100 degrees. But the thing about the scientific method is, until you find a piece of data that doesn't actually fit your hypothesis, you can maintain that hypothesis, but then when you find a data point that doesn't, what do you do? You go back and you have to come up with a new hypothesis, right? So one of the best examples of this one is the whole thing about black swans. So uh, up until about the 17th century, lots of English botanists presumed that swans were only white. Because by their observation, they'd only ever seen white swans. A 17th century explorer comes back from, of all places, Western Australia, and says, guess what? Swans are black. And they all went, no, they're not. You're an idiot. Well, maybe they didn't say that. No, they're not, right? Swans are only ever white. Because in their experience, scientifically, of all the cases they'd seen, swans were only white. So I presume what he does is, because they didn't have cameras, right? He pulls out the black swan out of his boat, which has made it all the way from Western Australia. He says, look, what's this? And what do you do with that, right? So they found the data point that no longer fulfills the hypothesis. So now you can no longer swear, say all swans are only ever white. Swans are actually white and they're also black. Do you see? Now there's lots of strengths to scientific method, but it's not the only way we know things. The last one, oh, you probably won't. How would you find out my middle name? How would you find out my middle name? You would ask me and I would have to reveal it to you. So the last way in which we know things actually is through things being revealed to us. Not supernaturally or mystically, right? Just sort of this process of revelation. You, you can't just hang around with me and go, oh, now I've sort of worked out what, your middle, what my middle name is. There's no way there's a set of rules that you sort of run over me and it spits out my middle name and we can apply that set of rules for all of us. Historic, well, scientifically, I mean, you could sort of poke and prod me and put me in a test tube and observe me. But no, actually, in this case, I need to reveal it to you. See, what I, the reason why I do this little exercise is we, we ought not to assume when we're going to talk about the claims of Christianity and the miracles that Jesus has undertaken, that this is the only way in which we know things. Because the human experience tells us there's lots of ways we know things and all of this knowledge in its own sort of way is actually very valuable to us. Sometimes I think what we do is we say, well, the reason why miracles can't exist is because they can't be repeated or I never observed it. But in the human experience, we know there's lots of other things that we know to be true and valid, which we don't acquire through the scientific method. So let's spend a little bit of time sort of leaning into what do we make of the miracles of Jesus? Are they fake or are they divine? So let me tell you a little bit of a story about uh, uh, something that happened in the life of Jesus. Uh, there's an account in John's Gospel, you can look it up later, it's John chapter 11, where Jesus receives word that one of his good friends is really unwell. The guy's name is Lazarus. And Jesus delays returning to go and see his friend Lazarus. Now, uh, Lazarus's siblings had sent word to Jesus to say, can you please come and heal him? Because we know, Jesus, you can heal people. And for various reasons, as you can read in the Gospel accounts, Jesus delays. By the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has died. He's been dead for four days. They've put his body, as was the practice, in a large sort of hole in, a, in, in, the, in, in the stone and they've rolled a big stone in front of the tomb. They've buried him. Jesus turns up and there's weeping and there's wailing. The, the full-on mourning is taking place, right? As is the case whenever anyone dies. Jesus arrives on the scene and he's genuinely, emotionally distraught. 
The Bible tells us Jesus weeps because his friend has died. One of Lazarus's sisters comes up to Jesus and says, if only you were here earlier, Lazarus would have been alive. And Jesus says to her, you will see your brother again. And after a little bit more conversation, Jesus goes over to the tomb. He doesn't touch the tomb. He stands at a distance and he says, roll the stone away. And the words are, no, 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 it'll stink. He's been in the tomb for four days. He's already starting to decay. Jesus just says, roll the stone away. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walks out of the tomb. Now, there's lots of people there witnessing this and they are immediately stunned, amazed, overjoyed. This is Lazarus who four days ago died and they put his body in the tomb. And now Jesus, with a word, has brought him back from the dead. Now, this is a historical account that's recorded for us in the scriptures. We can't replay it. We can't recreate it today. We can't scientifically test it. It's a piece of historical evidence that we have to give an account for. So my question is, what do you make of this account? Because for some in the room, you will dismiss it as fake, a stunt. Maybe Lazarus didn't really die. Maybe he and Jesus had planned it beforehand. And Lazarus had sort of drunk something that just sort of made him swoon. And he'd been hanging around in this tomb for four days when everyone else thought that he was dead. Maybe it actually never occurred and it was just made up afterwards by the people who were writing down the gospel accounts. Each of us, when confronted with Lara's bits of evidence, and particularly this piece of historical evidence, needs to work out what do you do with this claim? How do you account for it? Because the consistent and repeated claim of Christians is that the man Jesus was a miracle worker. Not just that he did one miracle, but that he did multiple miracles. And if you've ever read through the life of Jesus in one of the four Gospels of the Bible, which is the narrative of the life of Jesus... We see that Jesus works all sorts of miracles. He turns water into wine. He feeds 5,000 people. He calms a storm with a word. He walks on water. He enables a blind person to see, a lame person to walk, and he raises the dead. See, what we see here is that Jesus does not just perform one or two miracles, but a large number of miracles and a variety of miracles. Now, the writers, when they record the life of Jesus, don't give us an extended commentary on this. But they're recorded in and among the teachings of Jesus. So given the prevalence and the nature of these occurrences, how should we regard them? Fake or divine? Now, in the gospel accounts, the writers refer to... Um, oh, there's a, sorry, there's a picture of the raising of Lazarus by Caravaggio, 17th century artist. Not quite sure it maybe looked like that, but anyway, it's an artistic impression, right? Um, in, the new, in the gospel accounts, the undertaking of Jesus, these miracles are referred to as signs. So this is just a sign I found off the internet, danger, cliff edge. This is presumably is a very big sign somewhere near the edge of a cliff, right? This is not the cliff edge itself, but this is pointing you to the reality, because the sign says danger, that danger is likely to be fairly soon, fairly near. See, signs point us to something far greater. And when you read some of the gospel accounts, particularly when you read John, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, we see that while the miracles that Jesus performs are in themselves amazing and impressive and wonderful, they're there to show us something far greater. And that's something actually about the person of Jesus. So John, in the last chapter of his narrative of Jesus' life, writes this, Jesus did many other signs, which is the same word that we translate as miracles, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. So you might want to say, what can be more impressive than the miracles themselves? Here, it's the claim that Jesus is God's saviour king. That's what that little word, the Christ, means. It's not his surname, it's a title, right? That Jesus comes as the Son of God. And he gives evidence for this in the miracles he undertakes. See, who else can feed miraculously? Who else can feed thousands of people, calm a storm and raise the dead, other than God alone? Now, I think for many people, this is an unexpected answer. That the man Jesus is not just a good person who gave us some great moral teaching that we maybe should consider following at some point. Now, the unexpected answer given to us by the signs, the miracles of Jesus, is that Jesus is the one who comes to restore us back into relationship with God. Jesus is the one who comes, he's put to death, he rises from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus, as amazing as that is, shows us that he has power over death. The very thing that you and I have absolutely no control over, that we will all one day die. So I want to suggest the case for miracles as divine and not fake rests on two key foundations. The recognition that the gospel accounts are historically reliable and that there is a God and that he acts in the world. So here's the challenge for all of us. And the challenge here is how do you account for the claims made by Jesus? Both about his miracles, but also who he claims to be. Now, you may choose to be very skeptical about the claims of Jesus. I encourage your skepticism. But don't be so quick to dismiss or ignore the claims of Jesus just purely because you don't think that Jesus ever existed. Or you've never actually sat and read the accounts for yourself. Or you've never actually worked hard at applying the historical method to see whether or not the gospel accounts are actually historical. The overwhelming conclusion that many people come to, including professional historians, is that the accounts that we have for the life of Jesus are historically reliable. In which case, you've got to work out, well, what now do I do with the claims that are being made that Jesus is the Son of God? Secondarily, how do you account for the claim that Jesus brings people back to life? He himself comes back to life, but we have at least two or three other occurrences of Jesus bringing people back to life. What do you make of that? See, other people may have claimed to be able to work miracles. But the claims that Jesus makes about what he does and who he is, I think, are just claims that cannot be ignored, actually. Here is someone who rises from the dead. And the reason why this claim can't be ignored is because it's the one thing that deeply affects all of us. And because Jesus also, in his teachings, offers us the same opportunity that one day we too would not die. But like him, we would be raised to new life. See, the claim that Jesus makes, and the, the claim that Jesus makes, not only is he God, but he offers us the opportunity to be in relationship with him. And the miracles, the miracles are a significant thing that justify that claim. So then my question is, will you at least, if you're skeptical, consider this? Okay, I'm going to hand back to Tim. And then I'm going to get back up again in a minute. We're going to do some Q&A. So you might like to be thinking about the questions that you might have. You want to do Q&A now? Yeah. Great. Here's what I'd love you to do. Talk to the person next to you. Have a quick chat. What do you find challenging about what you've just heard in the last 15 or so minutes? And then you might like to share that 
with the room. I'll just take open questions from the floor. Uh, if you feel a little bit uncomfortable about sticking up your hand and asking, asking a question, just nudge the person next to you and say, Psst, can you ask him this question? Right? That's fine. Uh, and then I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll give you about 60 seconds, chat with the person next to you. I'll do a Q&A. We'll go for about five minutes and then we'll hand back to Tim. Okay? Have a chat among yourselves. Yeah, great question. So the question is, in case you didn't hear it, is um, if uh, miracles in the Bible are pointing us to something about the nature of Jesus' character, uh, what should we do uh, about the occurrence of miracles today? Is that really your question? Yeah. Yeah, yeah great question. Look, it's worth, and this is, a, this is a really good question, it's worth saying that actually things, even before the time of Jesus, when you read through, say, the Old Testament, the narrative of God's dealing with his people in Israel, things happen miraculously. People were brought back from the dead. Uh, the, uh, the nation of Israel was, you could say, fed miraculously in, when they were wandering around the wilderness. So it's not as if miracles only ever occurred just around the person of Jesus. They do actually occur because every time I'd say God works in, na- in, like in the natural order, for example, in a way that you wouldn't normally expect, you could say, well, that, that's a miracle, right? Which means you uh, have to then, I think, be discerning if you see something today that even Christians would claim is a miracle. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but it's what I would say is it's not God's normative way of acting. God normally doesn't just keep working miracles. It's not as if he's bored and he's sitting in heaven and saying, let's do another miracle. There's another one over there. There's another one over there. There's another one over there, right? That's just not the way God normally acts. There is a sense in which the world continues because God enables it to continue in its current operations, which we would say that's the natural order. Now, I want to say because God exists, that's God actually superseding and ensuring that takes place. So there's nothing precluding God at any point in intervening. So hopefully this doesn't happen, but if this afternoon as I'm walking home from the station, I get hit by a car and I die, right? I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, there's nothing precluding God from working a miracle and resurrecting me back to life. If he so chooses to, he could. But it's not the normal way that God acts. Does that help answer the question a little bit? Yeah. yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. For a non-Christian, I think often it might be like easy to be like, accept historical things that don't affect their lives. So, okay, Julius Caesar was real. Right? Yeah. Like, does that affect my daily life? Yeah. No. Um, but for the claims of the gospel, it is so life-changing and important, right? So how do you think a non-Christian can come to terms with like pushing aside potentially other logic and things they struggle with um, to accept that historical evidence? Okay, good question. There's a couple of questions going on there. Um, this is the illustration I use, right? Uh, how many of you have flown on an aeroplane? Just show of hands, right? Most of us. Anyone never flown on an aeroplane? Okay, great. Before you got on the aeroplane, did you sit down and work out how it is that the aeroplane stays in the air? Have you ever wondered when you look at an A380 how it actually stays in the air? Do you know how much it weighs? Hundreds of tons? Have you ever tried to suspend anything in the air that weighs hundreds of tons? But did any of you honestly sit down and go, how the heck does this thing work? Will I be safe? Will I get to the other desk? Like, none of us, did any, honestly, you, I mean, you might have. I'm interested to know. Tim did a little bit. Is that because you did a little bit? Great. Is this partly because you're just in, intuitively curious or are you genuinely a little bit fearful that it might actually not stay in the air? Curious. Curious, right, okay. It's interesting that all of you, other than maybe these two gentlemen here, actually had faith, as in you had trust, that this thing called an aeroplane, when it takes off, it actually stays in the air. It's not just going to fall out of the air. 
as long as a couple of conditions are being met, right? Forward propulsion is the main thing because that enables good airflow over the wings, which creates a differential between high and low pressure so the airplane continues to rise. In case you didn't know, you can Google that later, right? But that's the way it works, right? But none of you chose to do that. Why? Because actually you were very trusting. Now, if you had have sat down and done the scientific research, you would have come to exactly the same conclusion and that may have actually strengthened your trust to actually get on the airplane. Now, you may be a fearful flyer. You may actually be really afraid of flying. But I suspect that's probably not because you've watched too many air crash investigation shows on Seven Mate late at night. Although for one of my children, that was the case. Uh, but I just wonder whether or not that's just you're sitting in a claustrophobic steel can for like more than about 90 minutes, okay? And you just go, Arr. My point here is there's lots of ways in which we demonstrate trust in things that we don't actually understand. And it doesn't mean that we should remain in ignorance because we ought to then go and say, actually, I wonder how the airplane stays in the air. And so you go and do the investigation. I think along the same way, there are some who are non-Christians who are skeptical that the miracles of Jesus are actually historically reliable. Some people will trust without going and doing the work. But the work is there to be done. Go and do the historical inquiry. Go and work out whether or not the documents that we have that are actually currently formed as the Christian Bible are historically valid. Have they been transmitted accurately from the manuscripts that we've got in the early, early first or second century? See, some of us, in a sense, if you like, take things on face value and we trust them. Some of us actually go and do the hard work. In the end, what's the suggested outcome? The outcome is trust in the words of Jesus. Does that help answer the question? Yeah. Um, there was another part to your question, which I've now forgotten because I got distracted by thinking about an A380. Come back to me afterwards if you like. My encouragement is the work is, all of the evidence is there. Thanks be to the internet too. You can actually go and just do it all from your work from home, right? One more question. If we've got time. Yep. Any other questions? Yes, up the back. Yeah, so the question here is how does the claims of the things that Jesus did compare to other radical figures such as Muhammad? Uh, okay, so two things to say here. The first thing is um, there's a number of uh, recognized what you would call world, world religions. Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, a couple of others, right? If they make competing claims or conflicting claims, one of them is true and the other one is not. That, that's just logic, right? You can't have two claims that are almost completely opposite and both of them being true. That's just relativism, relativism gone completely nuts and we just can't function. So logic would say, if one religion claims that Jesus existed and another one claims he didn't, one of them is true and one of them is not. That seems fair, right? So you can go away and do the work and work out what are the competing claims that are made. To give you an example, Christianity claims that Jesus lived and rose from the dead. Islam claims that Jesus lived, he was a prophet and he didn't die, therefore couldn't rise from the dead. Both of those competing claims can't be true. There is a third option, and the third option is that Jesus never existed and therefore didn't die and couldn't rise again. But only one of those three can claim to be true with regard to Jesus and his resurrection. My suggestion here is go away and read the claims that religions, in this case, make and actually test to see whether or not what they say is actually true. Reliable when you're dealing with historical things. Internally consistent as well would be a helpful one to think about. Right. Have a chat a bit more if you like. I'm going to hand back to Tim. Over to you, Tim. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyunieu.org.